Okay, good morning. We're going to go ahead and get started today, um, resuming our study on uh, church history. Last week we had a missions presentation, and today we're back in uh, a history of heresy, the history of the church from 50 to 500 AD. This is actually our ninth time together, and today... We're actually not going to talk specifically about heresy. We're going to talk about something very important during this period of time uh, in the early church, and that is the, the New Testament canon. The handouts are in the back if you didn't get one. Uh, the subject today is the formation of the New Testament canon. How did we come to know which books of the Bible uh, belonged in the Bible? Which writings belonged in the Bible. Something that's talked a lot about today, and, and the word uh, canon is an important word. So let's, before we dig further into this, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time to study together. We uh, come uh, in always knowing our need of grace. Lord, we need your grace every moment. Uh, we need it every, truly uh, every, every moment of every day. And we certainly need it as we dig into your word, that we might understand, uh, that we might walk in truth, that we might turn more from sin and trust more in Christ, deeper and deeper our repentance might grow, and, and deeper and deeper our faith might grow. Uh, Lord, use this time to that end and bring glory to Jesus as you make us more faithful followers of Christ by following his word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the canon, the word canon, C-A-N-O-N, is actually a transliteration of a Greek word, canon, which means rule, or like a ruler. The canon actually was, originally was a word for like a, uh, a reed that they would take, or you know, a small stick that they would use as a measuring stick. And so the, the idea of the New Testament canon, the Old Testament canon, that is, what is the, what's the rule or standard? So canon equals rule or standard. Um, you know, what books are the rule for the Christian life? What books are the standard? Uh, and, of course, we have come to believe the 66 books of the Bible as we have it, 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books. And what we want to look at today is how the canon, the New Testament canon was formed uh, during the first century and a half of the uh, New Testament era. I mean, after uh, Jesus' ministry. And as, uh, as he ascends to heaven, the next 150 years, the New Testament canon is established. Now, there's going to be some, as you read some things historic, or you read people talking about these things, there's a lot of different opinions out there. Uh, some are, uh, you know, helpful, some aren't. Some are very uh, ignorant and just filled with presuppositions, humanistic presuppositions that lead them to certain conclusions. In fact, modern misconceptions concerning the canon, theological liberals, you know, people who don't believe the Bible is the Word of God, often will go as far as saying they don't believe the Bible writers ever intended to, for you to view it as the Word of God. They, they just don't, you know, they, they have no regard for the Word. And so theological liberals, uh, what's it really matter? And, and so they would have a very different view of how the canon was formed. It's kind of just a matter of human opinion. And it's just very, you know, uh, up in the air. Uh, and, and so that would be their view. But then you have another uh, pro predominant view is the Roman Catholic view, and the Roman Catholic view is based, summed up well in a, in a sentence, the church gives us the Bible. The church gives us the Bible. And that is, they put the ultimate authority on the church. The church is the one who determined what books belong in the Bible and what books didn't. And in a sense, it's a half-truth the church did recognize what books belonged in the Bible, but the Catholic view really puts it a lot differently. The church gives you the Bible. The church makes it God's word almost is how it comes across and, and how they really view it. As related to this is the view of the Da Vinci Code, the, the, the book by uh, Dan Brown, 
written about 20, 25 years ago. Um, that was kind of the craze for a while. Uh, he wrote several books. A couple of them were made into movies. Uh, it, basically, his view is similar to the Catholic Church's view, but just on steroids. Uh, the idea, and, and this is, the, this is the, the underlying assumption to the Roman Catholic view and to Dan Brown's view, is that there were all these writings out there People are just writing stuff, claiming to speak for God. And all of these things were out there. And at some point in time, a group of people had to get together and decide what's in the, what's, what are we going to listen to? And so Brown makes a point that 325 at Nicaea, they did some of this. And the Catholic Church would say, really, it's the Synod or Council of Hippo 393, where the church kind of figured out which books belong. And the idea is that they really just had, the church had no idea, I mean, what to, to, who to listen to. And the church, the Catholic church, I mean, I'm talking about churches, Christian people had no idea who to listen to. And then God worked through the, the you know, the union of all the church leaders to establish that. And this is why that we should always give ultimate authority to the church, the Catholic church. And the problem is, the view completely misses the way all of Scripture is put together. In fact, the Old Testament canon is another uh, issue. What, what books belong in the Old Testament canon? And what, I, what I'm going to show, well, what I, where I'm, I'm going to try to show you how this, this happens over time, but the Old Testament canon was clearly established by the time of the New Testament. And what I mean is, they weren't, they weren't wondering what books were in the Old Testament. They weren't waiting on... and Because the Roman Catholic view would have you believe that until the Council of Jamnia in 90 AD, it's not a church council, it's a Jewish council, in a place called Jamnia, the Jews got together and they reasserted what the Old Testament canon was. Okay? And the... Now, they had a council, yes, and they did say these are the books of the Old Testament. And the way they list it is basically 22 because they group a lot of the books together. The 12 minor prophets are one book. So that means you take 39 down by 11 right there, right? Uh, so now you're at 28. And you keep working down by Ezra and Nehemiah is one book. Like, we preached through it that way, remember? It's two books in our Bible, but it's one book in the Hebrew Bible. First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel. One book each. So anyway, you work it on down, and you come down to 22 uh, books. And so the Council of Jamnia did meet and did reassert this. And why did they have to do it? Well, because after the uh, fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the Jewish people were in a time of great crisis and flux. There were false teachers who came out and were trying to lead them away from the canon, and they had, they had to have a council to reestablish what they had always believed. And that's really important. All of the church councils are basically that. When the Council of Nicaea reaffirms the deity of Christ, they're not inventing a new doctrine. They're reaffirming what the faithful always believed. When the Council of Chalcedon, which we're going to look at, Lord willing, next week, talks about, uh, affirms the, the, uh, full humanity and full deity of Jesus in one person. One person, two natures. They were reaffirming what the church had believed. They weren't inventing something new. They were clarifying, but they were, they were not inventing something new. When, so the Council of Jamnia was not inventing a new canon. It wasn't like the Jews were wondering, what in the world books? Well, they, they got in trouble a little bit by some recent false teaching, but all throughout history they knew it. And one of the ways you know that is because the New Testament writers themselves, Jews, writing mostly between 35 and 70 A.D., before the fall of Jerusalem, they quote all of the Old Testament books as authoritative. And they don't quote any other non-Old Testament books as authoritative in the same way. There are some allusions to uh, some extra-biblical books, a couple of them, but they, they're not quoted with the normal formula. The normal formula the New Testament uses is, as the prophet has said, or the scripture says... 
those things are all over. You look at Matthew, just read the first few chapters of Matthew. He's continually saying this was to fulfill what the prophet said, and he quotes Isaiah. This is to fulfill what Jeremiah said, and he quotes Jeremiah. You see what I'm saying? So they knew this, the, the canon of Scripture. And when Jesus was explaining on the, on, uh, the road to Emmaus, he explained from the law, uh, the prophets, and the writings, the three major uh, ways the Jews divide up their, their Bible, the Old Testament, uh, the law, the prophets, and the writings, he showed them all over the place how everything was pointing to him. And it was clearly established. He wasn't have to say, hey guys, I just want you to know this is actually canonical. You don't know that because you're just in a sea of hopeless subjectivity. No, they knew. And I'm going to show you how they knew because they knew from the beginning how to test canonicity. From the very beginning, they knew it. And the practice of the Jews in the Old Testament becomes the practice of the New Testament church for determining canonicity. That's the big argument. And that, I think it's the most sound and clear, logical way of looking at this. It's just obvious once you step back and you look at the pattern. And so they weren't lost in a hopeless sea of subjectivity I'm going to argue that the New Testament, New Testament Christians knew what was canonical. They had their Old Testament. Those are the scriptures they're looking at. Then they have a letter from the Apostle Paul. Paul writes as an apostle claiming to, to have received the word of Christ, speaks it, writes it, canonical, instantly. It's added to the canon then. So the Philippians receive it. They receive it as canonical. Then they start sharing it because they were told to share it. The Colossians receive Colossians. Instant canon. Okay? So what's happening then is the Colossians have now the book of Colossians, and they get the book of Philippians sent over to them, and they add it in. This, this is from Paul. The Philippians have given witness. He wrote it. And, yeah, they read it. Yeah, it, it's just the same character. Yes, and so... Really early on in the early church, they're forming a pretty significant New Testament canon. Like I said, it's before the internet age. They can't go online and search and pull up all of the different things. No, they've got to receive them. But they're also the root of the church. One of the reasons I think God uh, ordained the, even the, the Jewish core of each church. Remember Paul, when, when he goes to a city, where does he always begin evangelizing? Now think about this. He is the apostle to the Gentiles, to non-Jews. And th this is made clear a couple places, Galatians 1 particularly, but um, he always goes where when he's going to evangelize Gentiles? The synagogue. He goes to a city, goes to the synagogue. He preaches to the Jews because the gospel's to the Jews first. And there's always some Jews that get saved. And they form the core, and then they usually get kicked out because the other Jews reject, and so then they go to the Gentiles. So every church has a Jewish core. And part of what God is doing in that is he's not only giving them the scriptures, he's giving them some of the culture of the Jewish that had been passed down, like the reverence for the word of God and the way you establish canon. So that's the big argument, and I think that's just completely sound. I have complete confidence in the Bible. If we had been in the first century, we were a first century church, we were some little place in Asia Minor, we would have known what was canonical. Not, not every single thing, because we haven't seen it yet. We haven't gotten every single book. But we would have had a canon that was 39 books, Old Testament, plus, you know, our letter from, uh, that he sent to us in our town and then the letter that Paul sent this other town that he sent us over, and we'd have the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark, and we just got the Gospel of Luke in, hey, and, and we got Acts in, and this is from Luke, who was an associate of Paul. We know it's canonical, and we would have been having our New Testament grow like that. Okay, that's the big picture. So now we'll get back to the, the outline. Number one, the Old Testament pattern for the prophets. Pattern for the prophets. Prophet comes from a Hebrew word, nabi, meaning spokesman. It's very important to get this, this fundamental concept is really the root of the whole issue. The prophet is one who speaks for God. Okay? The nabi means spokesman. He comes with authority. 
And what you will see, and you'll see this, particularly if you just read through the introductions to so many of the books, the first few the first sentence or two of the uh, of the prophetic writings will say things like this: "The word of the Lord that came to Zechariah." You see what he's he's claiming to have. God has given me His word, and and this I, I'm I've spoken it, and now I'm writing it. And that is essentially the pattern: the prophet receives the word of the Lord. It's that first little. Number one there, I, uh, the prophet receives the word of the Lord, the prophet speaks the word of the Lord, and the prophet writes the word of the Lord. That's the pattern. You see it in Moses, the first prophet, the great prophet. He is called by God, and God gives him his word, And he says, thus says the Lord. This is what God wants us to do. God has sent me. And remember, he even is concerned. Listen, hey, how are they going to believe that that you've talked to me? Remember Exodus 4, the burning bush? Uh, Lord, when I go and tell them that you sent me, and they say, you know, how can we trust you? How do we know that God sent you? He said, we'll give them these signs. And remember, he throws his staff down. He turns water into blood, uh, it turns into a snake, I mean, and etc. And he puts his hand in, becomes leprous, then he puts his hand in, becomes clean. Signs will accompany this to show them that you've heard from me. And he says, essentially, as you read through Exodus, you even see the formula, because then, remember, Moses doesn't want to talk. And so what God does is says, okay, I'm going to give you, Aaron's going to be for you like a prophet to you. You have the word, you give it to Aaron, he speaks it. That's the pattern. Someone has the word, gives it to the prophet, the prophet speaks it. This is, this is what a prophet is. A prophet has received a divine revelation directly from God, he speaks it. And then what you see is in Moses, the pattern is he writes it. He doesn't just speak it, he also writes it. For future generations to have that which he's already spoken. And then, so Moses' final instructions, his last book is Deuteronomy. He gives us Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the law, the Torah, as the Jews called it. Turn with me to to Deuteronomy 18. For 40 years, Moses has been leading the people, right? 40 years since he's led them out of Egypt. Now he's, he's, di- he's about to die right before they go into the promised land. God's not going to let him go in. And he's giving them his final instructions. Deuteronomy means second giving of the law. He's, he's reiterating the whole law again. And he's also adding some important instructions And one of the things he knows they need to know about is how they're going to hear from God going forward now that he's gone. Is this all God has to say to us, the five books of the Bible? Look what verse 15 says, 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you and your countrymen, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. God's going to keep speaking through prophets from among your countrymen. Verse 16, this is according to all that you ask of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of your assembly, saying, let me not hear, uh, hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore. I will die. Remember, they were terrified when they heard God speak out of heaven. And they're like, give us, give us your word, not such a terrifying way. And God said, I've always intended that, of course, and that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put my, ma- my words in the mouth of another human being, and he's going to speak it to you. That's what verse 17, the Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet, like, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I'll put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. This is the, this is the pattern. God gives his words to a man 
they speak them, and the people are supposed to test the prophets. That's that number one there. Test the prophets, then listen to them. Because he's going to go on into how you have to test the prophets in these next verses. Verse 19. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to the words which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require to him. You, you must listen to the words of the prophet. The words of the prophet that God puts in his mouth are authoritative. His people must listen, must submit. But look what he says next. But the prophet who speaks a word, verse 20, but the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. There will be a tendency for people to rise up and be false prophets. They'll speak presumptuously. I've not given them something, but here they are saying that God has given me this word. Or they may say that God has God spoken through me, and, there's, and, and I'm a prophet, and we're supposed to worship Baal, too. God, when that happens, God says, that's not for me. And so... Anyway, what you, you have, well, let me, well, next thing too, verse 21. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? That's the question of canonicity. How will we know, how can we possibly determine which, when a person stands up and says he's going to speak for God, how can we know if he is truly a prophet of God or not? Very important question, isn't it? And here God is giving this at the very beginning, his first five books, his first installment of the Bible, first prophet, he's laying down the pattern. How are you going to know when I'm speaking or not? Gives the answer in the next verse. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, you shall not be afraid of him. You don't listen to this guy. He speaks and it doesn't come to pass. He speaks and it's not true. Or according to also, he speaks and tells you to worship other gods. Basically, the way you test a prophet, there's, there's three things in this passage. First of all, he claims to speak for God. That's authority. He claims to have authority. This is how you know if God's spoken. He claims to have authority. Secondly, there's the test of consistency. If he's telling you to worship other gods are speaking in the names of other gods. That is being completely inconsistent with what I've been telling you already. You see, he's coming up saying new and novel, weird stuff. You don't listen to him. And thirdly, so it's authority, consistency, and thirdly, accuracy. What he says is true. It comes true, which the idea of prophesying that something's going to happen and it does happen could also... Uh, add an element, not just accuracy, but, but his, uh, his um, I'm trying to think of the word I usually use here. Uh, anyway, it's not, it, the idea is he's, he's predicting something. It's on the tip of my tongue. Anyway, he's predicting something and it comes true. That, that, that's more than just being truthful. It's being accurate in, 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 in a predictive way. There's a supernatural element here. I'm going to think of that word in a minute. It's one of those, uh, I've got all those four points that all have an, a Y on the end, and there's another word like that, you know? Anyway, okay. Age. Okay, so you, you test the prophets, and then if they, if they pass the standard of authority, consistency, and accuracy, you listen to them. And what does that mean? You do what they say when they speak it, and you submit to their written word. You receive that as canonical, you see? So he's saying, look, when, somebody, when God raises up other men to speak the word, what's going to happen is your book that is five books right now, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, will grow by accretion. That's actually the word. The canon grows by accretion, A-C-C-R-E-T-I-O-N, accretion. It means one book at a time. It means adding on little by little. This is how the canon is going to grow. He's not saying you're going to be in hopeless subjectivity until an authoritative group gets together and helps you navigate your way out of this subjective slime. No, you will know every 
time that a prophet speaks, whether you listen to him or not. And this is the pattern that they clearly adhered to. So Joshua comes along, and he claims to speak with authority. He he does so in consistent ways with Moses. He tells him to worship Yahweh. He do, he do, he's accurate in what he says. When he says something's going to happen, it happens. He says, walk around this uh, city, Jericho, seven times, and we're going to shout. Be silent the whole time. At the end of that time, they'll blow a trumpet. You shout. The walls are going to fall. What happened when they did that? The walls fell. Therefore, what Joshua has to say is canonical. Okay? Same thing's true going forward. All the rest of the books of the Bible, that's how it's added on like that. Uh, Now, one of the ways you see this, the canon after Moses was the Pentateuch. The canon grows by accretion, one book at a time. Sorry, I got out of order there. The canon after Moses is the Pentateuch. That's Genesis through Deuteronomy. The canon grows by accretion. That's E. Daniel 9, 1 and 2. Look at this. Daniel 9. I could show you other examples, but this is the best one. Daniel's right after Ezekiel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Isaiah 9, I mean, Daniel 9, 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign. Very emphatic about when this happened. First year. The first year of Darius or Darius. This is 539 B.C., 539, 538, when Babylon has fallen, okay? So in the first year after Babylon has fallen and to the Medo-Persian Empire, the Medes and the Persians, Daniel has this experience, this vision, but it's prompted because look what verse 2 says. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books. He observed in the books. The number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Daniel is is talking about something. He's reading his Bible. He's reading his Bible in 539 B.C., Okay? You know when Jeremiah wrote what he wrote? Probably about 570 B.C. He ministered from about 620 to 570. We don't know exactly when he died. Somewhere in the 70s. After the fall of Jerusalem, 586, Jeremiah ministers all the way through it. Lamentations is him looking at Jerusalem in the desolation of of what happened to it afterwards after the final destruction in 586, which is just uh, 46 years before this is written. But he probably wrote closer to 570. So he writes in 570 B.C. Now think about it. How do you test the prophets? Jeremiah said, I have the word of the Lord. And there were a lot of other guys saying they had the word of the Lord. When you read Jeremiah, there's other people saying exactly the opposite of what Jeremiah is saying, and they're saying they have the word of the Lord. So in that sense, in that particular moment, the people were in a moment of subjectivity. Who is telling us the truth? Jeremiah is saying God's going to destroy Jerusalem. The other people are saying God's not going to destroy us. He's going to make us victorious over the Babylonians. Well, Jeremiah was right. Paul? Paul? Yeah. No, I think, I, I, especially if you read Jeremiah, I mean, I forget, is Hanani or one of the guys that's uh, the false prophet that is telling, who breaks the, the staff that Jeremiah's carrying? Jeremiah's wearing a staff. I mean, not staff. He's wearing a, uh, uh, yeah, a yoke, a wooden yoke. And he's, he's walking around with a wooden yoke on. It's supposed to be a, something for oxen. He's walking around with it continually. And why is he doing that? Because the prophets often had to not only speak it, they had to demonstrate it by 
some visible means. And so he's right walking around with, he's telling them, repent, God's going to judge us. And another false prophet takes his yoke from his back, breaks it on the ground and says, this is what the Lord, this is the word of the Lord. It's, he's going to not only not uh, d- deliver us in the hand of Nebuchadnezzar in two years, it's going to be all over. Nebuchadnezzar is going to be completely not bothering us anymore. And Jeremiah says, well, the word of the Lord is that now you've broken a, 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 a yoke of wood. God's going to give, put on us a yoke of iron. And if I've not spoken the word of the Lord, you know, you will, I, I, he also says, you're going to die this year. This false prophet, and he died that year. You see, so what's happening is they're actually learning Jeremiah is the prophet that year. And not only that, they're going to, in two years, when the city's totally destroyed, they're knowing this guy is the prophet of God. All the faithful, now there's always ungodly, wicked people who are just confused, but the faithful know Jeremiah's the prophet. And so Daniel, now Daniel's hearing about that. He's been over in Babylon since 605 B.C. He was taken captive 20 years before Jerusalem finally falls. But he's being faithful to God in Babylon. He's reading his Bible, and they're keeping note of what's going on. And this this is another important thing. The faithful, once they receive the book of Jeremiah, they know it's the Scripture, and they spread it. You share it. So somebody's traveling over to visit family because there were some Jews in, you know, in around still around Jerusalem, a, a remnant, a small number, and then most of the, the the Jews are in in Babylon, Ezekiel and Daniel and and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and all those others, and so they take the document over clearly because Daniel has a copy of it as he's reading in 539 B.C. Well, the point is. He knows it is the Bible. He's not wondering, gee, I wish I had the Council of Jamnia, which is going to happen 600 years in advance, to tell me if this is the Bible. He knows it. Okay? That's the pattern. Now, yeah, how did Daniel get a copy of the prophet's writing? People, when you receive the Bible, you spread it. You share it. Now, Jesus commissioned to the apostles, number two. Jesus commissioned to the apostles. Uh, yeah. The Babylon respected too. You find it interesting that what? The kings of Babylon respected that too. The kings of Babylon respected. Oh, you're talking about like uh, how uh, uh, Cyrus is, is, is apparently impacted by the fact and, and then later... Uh, one of the other kings is respects the fact that he's told by Ezra, this is written in the scriptures, and they have a reverence for that. Yeah, even though we're not sure about the salvation of all these different people, but they, they even had some sense of reverence for the fact that, wow, these, these guys seem to say what happens comes true, even in cases where they might not again saved. And I do think Nebuchadnezzar got saved myself, but anyway, when you look at Daniel 4. Um, now, so... The, uh, the word apostolos, our English word apostle, comes from the, the Greek word apostolos, which comes from a verb apostello. Stello means send. Apo means from. Sent from is the idea. Sent from. And then turn over, sent to do what? What are the apostles? I mean, Jesus calls them apostles. They're not just disciples. They're apostles. And they're 12. Judas is obviously not really one of the ultimate apostles. I think there are actually 12. That's why there's 12 thrones in, in, in Revelation. There's debate about who's the 12th. I think it's really, my opinion, and Paul is the 12th. But it doesn't really matter. We'll find out when we get to heaven. Uh, but the 12 apostles are commissioned by Jesus to do what an apostle does. An apostle is someone sent with authority. And what Jesus basically commissions the apostles to do, when you look at Matthew 28, 18 to 20, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Go make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. He's saying, look, you guys go and take 
my words. You see that? Take my words and give them to others. That's what an apostle does. An apostle receives the word of the Lord. He speaks the word of the Lord and he writes the word of the Lord. Apostle is just like a prophet. It's the New Testament version of the prophet, the Old Testament prophet. In fact, you see this when you look at how the scriptures, oh, well, we're going to, yeah, I'm going to jump ahead. Um, Acts 1, where the, the uh, Acts 1, 21 to 26 is later in the outline, but just talk that for a second. Um, this is when they realize, you know, Jesus has told them in Acts 1, 8, another key passage, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea. You're going to bear witness to what you have seen and heard from me. And he tells them in John 13, 14, 15, 16. You see it's several times he says, the Holy Spirit's going to give you remembrance of what I've said. He's going to bear witness. The Holy Spirit that I'm going to give you is going to make you my witnesses. He's going to give you and bring to your remembrance things that I said to you. So why? So you can speak it and write it. So that then the, the New Testament church, let's just jump on down. Uh, yeah, okay, well, let me, uh, no, I'm sorry. Okay, number three, the apostles view of their own writings. The apostles view of their own writings. And the first A is the authority of the office. They saw the office of apostle this way, that they have authority to speak for Christ, to speak for the Lord. To have the word of Jesus is to have the word of Yahweh, isn't it? They received the word from God the Son. And they're giving that word to his people. Um, so one of the things you see, and I just gave you a few examples. Paul does this in nine of his 13 letters. He begins by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Why does he say that? You can, you've got to listen to me. It's the same thing as saying the word of the Lord, which came to Malachi. I have the word of the Lord. You must listen to me. And Peter does the first thing, does the same thing in his two letters. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I have been commissioned to this. So the authority of the office is what they claim at the very beginning of their letter so often. This is what's going on behind the scenes, or not even behind the scenes. It's the issue in 2 Corinthians when Paul's defending his apostleship. He's defending the fact that he has the word of God. And it's for the people of God to know that he has the word of God. It's like I'm being accused of being a false prophet, a false apostle. I bear the marks of a true apostle. I have the words of a true apostle. That's really the argument of 2 Corinthians. So the, the authority of the office, the authority of their message. Let's look at a few of these verses. 1 Corinthians 2.13. See, this is how the apostles viewed their message. We're looking at how the... Then we're going to look at how the church viewed the apostles' message. Just to confirm this whole idea of canonicity. 1 Corinthians 2.13 well, let's start with verse 12. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world. This is 1 Corinthians 2, 12. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those things taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Paul's saying, listen, we are speaking to you spiritual truths that have been taught to us by the Holy Spirit. He's claiming to have the, the, the office to speak the word of God. 1 Thessalonians 2, turn over past Ephesians and Colossians to 1 Thessalonians 2.13. He commends the Thessalonians, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us. You see that? When we spoke, what did you hear? wasn't just a message, wasn't just a sermon, wasn't an opinion. You heard the word of God from us. 
You accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. When they took the gospel message out, Paul says the apostles are delivering the word of God. Just like the, the prophets claimed in the Old Testament, the Lord has spoken to me and I'm speaking to you what he has given to me. Peter does the first thing, same thing. If you look at 1 Peter 1.12, he's going to talk about the Old Testament prophets and then the apostles. He says, it was revealed to them, speaking of the Old Testament prophets, that they were not serving themselves, when they, but you in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. He said, basically, the Old Testament prophets, when they were foreseeing Christ coming, they, they, didn't, they knew they weren't serving themselves, but they couldn't see everything clearly. But now you've had this clarified because it's been announced to you from heaven in our preaching. You see, clearly, New Testament apostles believed themselves to be preaching the word of God. And Second Peter, if you turn over to Second Peter chapter 1, he explains what the Word of God is, how the Word of God has come to be. And here he's talking about Old Testament prophets, but, but he's actually saying more than that too. So we, in, in verse 19, 2 Peter 1, So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention to as to a lamp shining a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now here he's talking strictly about the Old Testament. And he says, the Old Testament, when you got it, it didn't come about by human... It's not, it's not about human uh, thought, human intention. It came by the absolute will of the Spirit. It's perfect. That's the Scripture. Now turn over to chapter 3, verse 16 of Second Peter. But let's start reading verse 15. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. Paul wrote to you. He's, he's writing to the people in Asia Minor, and he knows they've been receiving from Paul letters too, because Paul has a ministry there. Paul wrote to you as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. You see that? He's regarding Paul as Scripture. They twist Paul just like they twist the rest of the Scriptures. Peter is contemporaneously affirming his belief that Paul is writing the Word of God. Okay? Now, that's the apostles' view. The early church's view of the apostolic writings, the Old Testament, that's number four, the early church's view of apostolic writings. A, the Old Testament pattern carries over into the early church because there is a strong Jewish core. I explained that earlier. Remember, start out preaching in synagogue. There's a strong Jewish core. The New Testament uh, continuity with the Old Testament. The idea is: Did the writer? The question that the New Testament that the New Testament churches or the churches that ha, are receiving New Testament documents are asking, when they receive a letter, they're asking the questions, the same questions the prophets. I mean, that the people ask in the Old Testament. And the first, the essential question is. Did the writer directly receive the word of Christ? Because that's what makes an apostle an apostle. He directly received the word of Christ. In fact, I, I never went to Acts 1, did I? I skipped over that. Well, let's go to it now. Acts one twenty one. This is this is this. Is, now I told you when they realized they have eleven apostles now because Judas has has killed himself and rejected Christ, and of course we, Jesus knew from the beginning who it was going to be, and so they 
they, and he says, you're going to be my witnesses. You guys wait in Jerusalem and the spirit will come upon you and then you'll be my witnesses. So they're waiting. They don't know how long they're going to wait. We know they're going to wait till Pentecost, which was only about 10 days more after Jesus ascended into heaven. But they don't know exactly how long, between a week and 10 days. And so um, they're waiting there and uh, Dave, Dave goes after... One day goes by, two days goes by, I don't know exactly how many days, we don't know exactly, but somewhere in the, there, Peter comes up with an idea, and I think he realizes, hey, we only have 11 apostles, we need to have 12, and so let's get a 12th apostle. We need to have another man ready to take the word to the nations. Jesus told us we're going to be his witnesses, we got to go taking the word of the gospel everywhere, we only have 11, we need 12. And so now I'm, get, I'm, writing, I'm reading between the lines here a little bit, of course, okay? But it, what they do is we do have exactly how they thought about it um, in verse 21. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection, they knew it had to be somebody who had been personally acquainted with Jesus. And this is where I think that Mattathias isn't really the 12th apostle because he wasn't directly called by Jesus. The 11 were directly called by Jesus. Okay? Mattathias, some people would take the opinion, well, the Lord worked through this and he called him through these means. Okay, maybe so. But I think it's really he calls Paul directly. So I think Paul will have that 12th seat anyway in heaven. But we'll see. Uh, I don't know for sure. And we don't know for sure. We can't know for sure. But the important thing was that early church, even as they're thinking about this, like, well, for somebody to be apostle, they have to receive the words directly from Christ. They had to have heard him directly teaching. Okay? Well, what's going to happen is God's going to call Paul and, and, and Jesus is going to meet with Paul and he's going to teach Paul directly his gospel which Paul makes clear in Galatians 1. In fact, the whole argument of Galatians 1, which we're not going to turn to now for sake of time, but essentially when Paul is writing to the Galatian church, the church is in Galatia, that region of Asia, minor, they're being troubled by Judaizers, false teachers, who are at, trying to add to what Jesus has done, say you need to be not only to be saved, you need to believe in Jesus, yes, but Gentiles also need to become Jews, they need to be circumcised, they need to practice dietary laws, etc., to be saved. Paul is saying, listen, that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel I received. That's not the message, the authoritative message of good news I received. And I am an apostle. This is his argument. So you'll listen to me. I'm going to tell you why I'm an apostle. I did not receive, this is, you can read Galatians 1 and 2, you'll see, chapter 1 really, you'll see it. He says, I did not receive my apostleship uh, just willy-nilly, Jesus himself came to me. And I didn't receive it through the other apostles. I didn't go consult with them immediately when I got saved. I actually spent time alone with Jesus on my own, and I received this gospel directly from him. You see, why would you listen to me if I got it indirectly through them? I got it directly from God. That's his argument in Galatians 1. Yeah, Martin. Why didn't they write theirs down? That's a good question. Why didn't Matthew and Mark, Luke and John not write down what, what, what's their credentials for giving it? Uh, that's, a, that's a very interesting question. Essentially, the basic opinion is the gospel writers were writing something that wasn't like the letters, the epistles... Are, are, are like an authoritative word to particular circumstances, okay? So the Corinthians, you guys are dealing with these issues. This is to you. The Galatians, you're dealing with these issues. This speaks directly to you, which was more like an Old Testament prophecy, like Malachi. I'm writing to a particular point in time, and this is to you. Now, I, uh, uh, does that make sense in one sense what I'm talking about? The, so the epistles, Paul to the church of Philippi, I'm an apostle, I'm writing to Philippi about what you're dealing with, and so I'm, I'm claiming my credentials to speak directly to your circumstance. When you look at the Old Testament pattern, you have that in the prophets. 
Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the way down. But in the previous writings, particularly between Moses and the prophets, you have uh, the former prophets, which are like, um, starts with Samuel, uh, or Joshua, Samuel, uh, Kings, and um, uh, Chronicles. But you ha- the, the, the way those guys write, they don't say in 1 Samuel 1.1, the word of the Lord which came to me. 1 Kings doesn't start off the word of the Lord which came to me. 1 Chronicles doesn't start off that way. It's actually telling uh, the, his, the history of God's dealings in a way that, that they are definitely claiming to speak for God, but they're, the, um, the, the, um, it's, it's a different genre sort of sense. You know, genre type of literature. A letter is a type, and a prophecy is kind of close to that because it's directly speaking to a particular situation authoritatively. These others, like the law itself, is a type of a genre. The writing, Psalms and Proverbs are a type of genre, and therefore they, they have a different beginning. They don't claim the authority the same way that these do. But and the Gospels are analogous to Samuel and Kings. They're telling, a his, they're, it's, it's, it's inspired history. You see what I'm saying? They're telling the historical account of Jesus' ministry, his life and ministry. It's not taking the application of that to a particular setting. Does that make sense? I wish I could make it make more sense. It makes sense to me. It made more sense to me before I even said it. But it's a great question. And I've had, I, I didn't have it in the outline, but it's a great question that I thought about uh, when I was working through this. But it, I'm so glad you asked it. So in the various genres, sometimes God puts that authority up front more clearly than others. And, and, and this seems, the gospel writers seem to be consciously trying to write in the tradition of the Old Testament his, history writers. Because they don't say, you know, they just say the gospel according to, they, they do say things like, uh, you know, let's see, the first chapter 1, Matthew 1, 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, he jumps right into it. Mark 1, he, he, he does it a little more, a little differently. He says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, but he doesn't tell you who's writing. Mark's basically writing for Peter. So it's Peter's message, really. Luke's writing for Paul. John's writing for John. So anyway, and God's working through these various means. Does that make sense? It's, 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 um, that's the best I can do with that question. A great question. Um, anyway, so back to the outline. So we are... The canon, then, let's see, Galatians 1, that's where we were. Okay, so Paul's making the point, I'm an apostle, listen to me. Now, this means that the New Testament authors are learning, I mean, New Testament church churches, as they're receiving documents, are learning. The qu- first question is, did they receive the word, do they claim to receive the word of Christ? If they haven't claimed to receive the word of Christ, they're not going to take it as authoritative. So other writings that they found helpful, things like the Shepherd of Hermas or Letters of Clement that you'll hear about, and they'll be talked about sometimes by these people who are denying canonicity, like I'm telling you about it here. Well, like, well, they thought those things were authoritative. No, they didn't. They thought they were helpful. And you find even writings of early church fathers saying it's helpful, but it's not canonical. And the way that early church writers, what, the way people like Clement and Irenaeus write is they have a reverence for the scriptures that's not there when they're talking about something else somebody wrote over here. This is the word of God. This is help. It's just like if I'm telling you something from the scriptures, then I tell you something that John MacArthur wrote in his book or R.C. Sproul wrote in his book. Hey, I'm gonna, I read sometimes from books that the Puritans write in the sermon. I'll read to you what Spurgeon said, right? Because it's really good. That's not scripture. That distinction is there in the first century too, and you see it in the second century. They're recognizing that. So, did the writer receive the word of Christ? But number two, we must still test their words. Don't just receive them at face value. Test them. Acts seventeen eleven says the Bereans were more noble minded than those in Thessalonica. Why were they more noble minded? Because they searched the scriptures to see if what the apostles 
Apostle Paul was saying was true. They're testing for consistency. Is what Paul's saying match up with the scripture we've already received? You see, what you have received is the test for what you're going to receive. Is it consistent with what we have received? I'll give you an example. The Book of Mormon is a, a book that claims to be a new testament of Jesus Christ, essentially. Joseph Smith claims to have received the Word of God. But if you compare it to the Old Testament and the New Testament and you carefully look at it, it is completely inconsistent with the scriptures we have. And we know the Bible was closed because of the way Revelation ends. We weren't going to get anything else. We have all that we need until Jesus comes back. But I'm just saying that you could apply the same test and know this is nothing like the Bible. Okay, so we must still test their words. The canon continues to grow by accretion, one book at a time. That's how it was growing in the Roman, Greco-Roman world in the churches that were there. The conclusion, Scripture is self-authenticating. Scripture doesn't need the church to confirm it. We are to test it, but we don't, we don't confirm it. We recognize it. You see that? We don't make Scripture Scripture. We recognize the Scripture. That's a massive difference. The church, For the church to say it gave us the Bible is an audacious, outrageous claim. rooted in arrogance and pride. The Bible is self-authenticating. What's that? Yes, sola scriptura. What? Oh, and the analogy of faith. Is that what you said? Analogy. Analogy, right? Yes. Yeah, the analogy of faith, Scripture interprets Scripture. So the, the Scripture shows us others. You know, the Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture is perfect. It all fits together. And if it doesn't fit together, it's not Scripture. So the, faith, the faithful basically knew what books were canonical. And so the, I end up contradicting the Roman Catholic view. Rather than the church gives us the Bible, the Bible gives us the church. The Bible is what creates the church. The church doesn't make the Bible. The Bible makes the church. The Word of God is what makes you a believer. The Word of God is what causes you to be born again. You're not born again by any other means than by the living and abiding Word of God. And then you are sanctified by the Word of God. So, and the Bible, God's self-authenticating Word, is from Genesis to Revelation is one consistent book, one consistent message. And the message is, thus says the Lord. This is God's word. So that's the, the idea of can't... Yeah, Stacy. Yeah, the Old Testament Apocrypha are books they add. Great question. Yes, they are, and it's so, so clear a really careful, just view of a reasonable view of history, looking at it. Guys like Josephus, who was a Jew in the first century, Philo, who was a Jew, a uh, Roman guy who wrote about Jewish history in the first century, they both stated clearly, and Josephus, being a Jew himself, stated clearly that Jews understood that all of the apocryphal writings were not scripture, that God had quit speaking through the prophets with Malachi. Malachi and Ezra were the last Old Testament prophets, and there was this gap, and every Jew knew it. That's what I'm saying. It was, it was common knowledge in the first century. So they weren't looking to the book of Enoch or these other books that the Catholics add in. In fact, the Catholics didn't add them in until 1546 in the Council of Trent. That's when they added them to the canon, which I think was kind of like a, an attempt to slap in the face the Reformers. Well, what they did is just double down on their condemnation. I mean, they're elevating books that... Most Christians will say they're helpful, and in fact, there are some allusions. Like I said, Jude alludes to something written in one of those uh, books. I can't, I can't remember. Maybe it was. Uh, I can't remember which one it is. But Jude, when he's talking about Moses arguing with with uh, Michael the archangel, 
I mean, not Moses. Michael the archangel arguing with Satan over the body of Moses. That's from one of those things. But again, it's not written as, as the prophet said. He just tells you this happened. So apparently that guy was right about that. And how do you know he's right? Because Jude, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says he was right. You see what I'm saying? That's when we know that that happened. We might have wondered if it happened before, but when Jude said it happened, it happened because Jude is inspired canon. Okay, so we're out of time. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, the preciousness of it. We pray that you would um, make us stronger and stronger in our faith in your word, make us bolder and bolder in our proclamation of it. May we be about your business of taking it to every single person we can, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, and know that the power of the scriptures uh, that cause us to be born again uh, can cause the most unlikely unbeliever to be changed in a moment. Lord, help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.